Hi, welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I am your host, Ben Wager, and with me is my co-host, Don Gibson. And yeah. today, we're looking at movies from 1977. We have picked a couple of movies based off the series of Best Pictures uh, nominated in either the uh, Academy Awards or the Golden Globes. And these are actually pictures that did not win for Best Picture. These were the other nominees. So that's kind of how we're looking at this. And we're going to start off uh, by talking about Don's pick, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Go ahead, Don. Thanks, Ben. Uh, well, you know, I remember how we started this thing out and you were talking about When Eagles Dare and our memories of seeing films. And I think it's a kind of a good thing to keep in mind about how we personally reacted to films, not only just all the stuff we learned about it from research. And this is a film that I absolutely adored. Uh, when I went, I was completely blown away by this film. So if you don't know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is about um, contact with aliens from another planet. Um, and so there, the advertising campaign at the time was this poster and also the TV was Close Encounters the first time is a sighting and then they'd have like a shot of an alien flying or a ship flying in the sky. And then Close Encounters the second kind is physical evidence and then that they would show like, you know, a footstep or, you know, some, some sort of thing that they left behind. And the third kind is physical contact. And then of course they're implying that we're actually gonna see our characters interacting with aliens. And um, I was just amazed by the whole thing. It was so exciting and, and so riveting. Um, it's, it's told from the, a working man's perspective of a guy that works for uh, a cable company. I think it's and a power, power company. Power company, yeah. you're right. Sorry, he had a lot of cables in his car. So yeah, he's a power company. And originally, so it's a fascinating film. It's a film by Steven Spielberg. He wrote and directed it. He actually had other people give him versions of, of uh, drafts but it's based on a film that he made when he was, the original concept was called Watch the Skies. It's a film he made when he was 17, 18 years old. And it was a much, you know, obviously it wasn't so refined and there was no budget. This thing ends up having quite a, quite a large budget of about 20 million. Um, and he shot it as a kid and it's based off his experiences with his dad. He grew up in Jersey and he and his dad went out one night and saw they saw a meteor shower. And uh, so Spielberg and his vivid imagination you know, transform that into potentially is that aliens in the sky. And, and so the original one he had was a scientist, you know, learning about them and getting contact. And then it was revised. There was a policeman and then somebody in the military. And then he realized, and this is probably Spielberg's forte, is to do it with a working class guy. So this guy that, that works for a power company and he's just a regular guy. He's got a couple of kids and he's got to go out in the job. And he's the guy that interacts with the aliens and he has... I would say the most riveting experience of this film is his interaction with the aliens when he's out on the on the middle of the road. He's lost. He's trying to find. And there's power outages everywhere because the aliens are in the sky, and he's trying to. And no one knows that. And he's trying to find out where he's supposed to go, and he's got a map. And so he's in the middle of the highway, and then there's a there's a lights that pull up behind his car, and and the, the, there's I think I think there's a honk, and he waves them over and go, goes past, and then the the guy yells at the car, you're a jerk, get out of the way. And then he, and then Richard Dravis drives a little bit further, looks at his map again, and then more lights come up behind him. Yeah, he's at a, he's at a train tracks. He's kind of pulled the, over it. Yeah. He's at the train tracks. You're right. And then, and then the car, instead of pulling past him, they rise. And yeah, cool. it's just so effective. And you're like, and you're like, oh my God, it's the aliens. You get so excited. And, and then he's, then things start happening. As you see, the, the rail crossing yeah. signs start shaking. They're like probing, they're, they're probing him with, with their alien sensors. Yeah, and stuff, with some know? sort of electrical energy. Yeah, and yeah, mailboxes yeah. are opening and closing. And the and cars are all freaking out, all the electrical. His gauges systems. are going up yeah, and down, yeah. and, and his, his ashtray pops out. And, and it's just, and, and then, he, then his reactions are so great, he starts gasping and freaking out. And then this bright light shines down on him. He looks up at it and he's sort of blinded by it. And then it's over and it flies away. And this is where Spielberg is just a master of, of great cinema uh, because he did the same thing in Jaws. The trick is not showing the, this stuff. It's, it's our impression of him. And we're like, oh my God, what it looked like. We're trying, to, we're trying to see them. And it's the same thing in Jaws. We never saw the shark um, until late in the film. The reason was that they, the shark wasn't working. 
And that wasn't the reason here, but he learned that that would make Jaws so successful is not showing the shark for a long period of time. And we really don't see much of the aliens until the end. And boy, does he show us a lot of aliens in the end. But the hold and, and the anticipation of when are we actually going to see these aliens is the great part of this film. Just waiting to see what's what's going to happen next. Yeah, and I like the uh, you know even during that scene that you just described. You know, they they they're probing to see if he's you know what's going on with him and whatever. And then they stop and it, he's harmless and they move on or whatever. And then you see them like down the road half a mile doing the same thing, like a little light shoots down. He sees yeah. it too through his windshield. Yeah. And so you know they're like periodically just checking everything out. And he and you know so he's like he's he's reacting to that going through that experience. And he's and you see through the windshield they're doing it again at the next intersection or whatever. And it, that was, I thought that was very impressionable. And then the other thing I liked was, you know, a lot when the CB comes back on and he's listening to all the radio reports, he's hearing all these sporadic reports of other people going through stuff like what I just saw something. I'm not sure what's happening, you know, and they build this up a little bit, too, because before they have these encounters, they start talking a little bit about uh, the air traffic controllers and, and, the, and the commercial flights. And they're like, do you want to report this? flight number no i don't want to report how about you flight six no i don't want to report it either you know and so there's like this whole stigma of pilots not wanting to report the you know alien sightings and all this stuff and uh and the air traffic controllers it seems like they've heard this before and they're like okay you know and that's it and, and so you know it kind of premises it, it 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 sets that premise of you know the 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 aliens are kind of in the neighborhood of of where they are before we start seeing these these direct encounters with Richard Dreyfus, And I really like that. Also, when he gets the report of the aliens um, still in that area and they're, and they kind of take this road and they, and they kind of drive by this road. And apparently they've done it several times because there's actually humans that are waiting at this one spot on the curve of this mountain. And they're waiting for the, the aliens to kind of go by again. And, and so there are a few people there. And then the next night there's even more. And then, you know, eventually the, the military comes and tries to disperse them because they they don't want them to think there really were aliens and you know there's a the, the automatic you know one thing i liked about this was how the government just defaults to we need to cover this up you know that's that's like the default move by the government yeah well there's i mean lots of great things you, you said and I, I love as you said how we see the whole film is about like, we're we're watching richard dreyfus and how basically people are interacting with him and then, you know, his wife, when he sees that, you know, half his face has got this basically sunburn on it, and it's from the bright lights of the alien's vessel, um, she just wants it to be covered up. She doesn't want anything to do with him being seen as a guy that believes in aliens because those people are crazy. And we see that those people that are waiting for the aliens, we see them are like, oh man, those people are crazy. And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's the interesting thing. When, when you meet someone that believes in aliens, you're like, okay, you're crazy. And of course, we're being taken down the road of believing an alien. So that whole playing with us of thinking, wait a minute, we see them, but these other people might be crazy is so well managed. And as you said, also the government and the way they handle these people is so, you know, the conspiracy and, you know, containing the secrets and not letting the people know the truth. Um, apparently, uh, Spielberg got a letter from NASA and uh, U.S. Armed Forces like a 20 page letter, don't release this film because it's dangerous and people shouldn't see this film. And Spielberg was like, yes, I've made a really good film because if they're sending me a letter like that, this is great. So um, he's, I think he's totally successful in creating this feeling of, uh, you know, believing that you're watching. I think, wait a minute, maybe there really are aliens. And it's really effective in just taking you along in the story. The other thing I like that you brought brought up about the perspectives is, you know, one of the things that Spielberg does so well is he incorporates children into his his stories so well. The perspective of of a child, and you know, the subplot of having the other woman, uh, and I can't remember the character's name, but her 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 little three year old son is Barry. Uh, Barry is that his name? Yeah, yeah. we. He says Barry a lot. Barry, yeah. she's called him right, Barry. right. So little Barry is, uh, you know, interacting with the aliens as well in in a in you know in a childlike way because you know his little toys are moving and and they're you know just kind of like the car but in his room and so, for some reason you know the aliens want him you know he's been targeted as like the sample or whatever um, because he seems to be you know. 
uh, you know, we get this, the, the aliens come to the house and they're trying to get in and she's closing all the windows and trying to cover up everything. And, and eventually the kid just walks out the, or the cat door. I think he, he squeezes through the cat door and they snatched him. And, uh, and, and it was a very, um, you know, that was a very intense scene because, and it really showed me the impact of Close Encounters on other directors because this totally reminded me of M. Night Shyamalan uh, in Signs in how he dealt with the aliens coming toward the house in Signs and how they're trying to get in through different ways. And uh, and you don't really see the aliens, but you you, you hear the noises and the, and the and, and you could really see how he was very impacted by Close Encounters of the Third Kind because the way he did the aliens around the house was exactly the way I felt Steven Spielberg did it with when the child got abducted by the aliens. You know, it was a very similar uh, uh, style. And so, you know, you can see how strong like this type of movie is when you know you can re immediately recognize in, in future movies the same kind of scenes and go, oh, that's, that's where M. Night Shyamalan got this kind of influence on how to make signs because there's a lot of similarities between that movie and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, and well also like this film is uh, many directors, I know Kubrick and Spike Lee specifically, I'm sure others commented on how much they just love the film because the film is not like, I mean, technically it's really well done. The sequence you talk about, uh, you know, with the boy, I mean, the lights are just so well done. These, you know, glowing orange lights coming in through Venetian blinds and and you know the really hot orange light coming through the cat door and, and the it, oven and the oven lights and, oven, yeah. and the toys all over the place and um you know turning on and and uh um it's so and they also the great shot of them we think from the alien's perspective coming down the chimney and the, and she's yeah. trying to close the, the and she just closes it in time and through the and vents like, through the vents in the, in the floor and yeah stuff. And it's supposed to be scary but the truth is you know we learn of course that these aliens are benign and they're just you know they just want to you know, examine the kid, as you say, we don't know exactly what we're going to do with him, but yeah, um, that scene, I will tell you though, that scene where they, where you see the screws unscrewing themselves okay. in the, in the floor vent, that yeah. was a really amazing scene to watch because you're just like, Oh my God, they're, they're, they're unscrewing the, the, the screws one at a time. And she's sitting there staring at that and she's trying to figure out what to do. And it's just, it was very, there was a lot of anxiety in watching that. He's got that down. Perfect. You know, either with jaws yeah. or, Close Encounters or even Raiders of the Lost Art series, you, you see all these interconnections of his style kind of really blossoming in this movie. And those elements are really, those are all basically horror elements and they're really easy. And he, and he doesn't take it too far because this is a movie that's great for kids, but it makes you kind of freaked out. And then he releases it and it, well, they do take the kid, um, but it's, but we, it's not like a horror thing where horrible, you know, gross stuff happens. It just, it makes us, as you said, really tense and, and anxious. And this is uh, the cinematographer is a guy named Vilmos, uh, Vilmos Shigbon. And he later, the next year, he worked on Deer Hunter and then another film after that. And he's really good. Once again, we were talking about uh, Darkness uh, a couple of films ago. And this film is this film's almost all at night because it's, it's aliens are way more interesting at night than during the day, of course, because the lights and the darkness. And so we they, they do it really well. And it's all about shadows and darkness and what's going to happen and what's revealed. And, um, and it's, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And earlier yeah. you were talking about the, uh, all those things about like the air traffic controller scene is so great. And it's fascinating because it's just a shot of guys sitting in chairs, looking at a screen and then close up to the screens and the screens are, you know, the, the representation of the planes and there's really nothing dynamic, uh, uh, visually but orally the the sounds of the uh, we can hear them reporting it's like this this thing looks really funny and then when we hear it going past we can hear the static electricity and, and then as you say do you want to report these things are so well done and as you said this is not our story these are the intercutting of what's happening in the world and then there's the other great scenes of when they discover you know the abandoned uh, world war ii planes yeah, they're all returned. They're all returned nice and yeah, they're all returned in their yeah. perfect condition. The everything is exact the gas is perfectly fine. Yeah. They can turn them on and, and we're like yeah. fascinating. It's like, what's going on? And all the half of these things were in the Bermuda Triangle, and we're like, oh now they're being returned. And it's just yeah. and it, we're like, wait a minute, these things are being returned, and now they're messing around in America. And the and other that, great and that whole that whole scene where they're returning the in the Sonora Desert in Mexico with the with the different uh, cultures intermixing with the, the Mexican government and the, and the French investigators and then the Americans. 
And and the way that was shot, you just really got the sense of, oh, this is, you know, this is the foundation of how he wanted to shoot Raiders Lost Ark series, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark series, because that really kind of connected a lot to the style that you see in those later movies. You know, that that scene specifically really reminded me of the development of the Raiders of the Lost Ark series, you know, the Indiana yeah. Jones stuff. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, very exotic and foreign and exciting. And um, the, one of the fascinating people in this film, I mean, we mentioned uh, Richard Dreyfuss, who was also starring in, in Jaws, um, is this guy, uh, Francois Truffaut, who is the French investigator, or he's the lead French scientist. And he's, a, he's an incredibly well-known French director of French New Wave. He's very powerful and very influential. This is the only film he ever starred in that wasn't his own, and only English film that ever came into and his role he's actually great he's a great character of a scientist that just wants to know the truth and and has a voice of authority and his accent works really well and um seeing Francois Truffaut who you know people who love you know important or whatever artistic films were kind of amazed to see him in what's essentially is a big blockbuster film but made incredibly well yeah, and he didn't live, I mean, he didn't live a long life. He died when he was like 50-something, right? I mean, yeah, he didn't die too long after the making of this film, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, he was very good in that, too. And I liked how he switched between English and French. And, and you know, Bob Balaban, um, the the actor who played the interpreter, he was oh, yeah. good. I really, I like him. He's a good actor. And uh, I always enjoy whatever he's in. He's kind of, he always has a little bit of that dry humor. He slips into some of his lines and he's just, a, I enjoy him. He's one of, one of those supporting actors. I always enjoy seeing on camera, you know? Yeah. No, he's, and his role is great. He's totally, he's totally believable. And he, and he, his, he just, and a lot of this film is reaction shots of them, you know, seeing whatever they're seeing. And he's just great. Like when the, the big mothership arrives, um, he just has these great reaction shots. Um, and then also another thing in, in terms of the exotic feeling, their choice of location of where they're going to meet the aliens, the Devil's Tower in Wyoming is, and it's, you know, actually I went there many years ago, like 30 years ago, and it's just a remarkable geological, uh, you know, occurrence. It's just, it is literally this tower that rises up out of a pretty flat area. And, it, and the myth mythology around it is that it's got these long, you know, contours in it and it and the the local uh, native culture, they had this all this whole belief of it that it was scratched by giant grizzly bears because it looks almost like scratch marks on it. So it's a really great place for like a myth mythological kind of center. And them putting the, the the big climactic scene of when the ship arrives and and that's where of course this is the you know, Richard Dreyfus is obsessed with this image in his head and the image in his head is the devil's tower. And he, one of the great scenes, he's making a little devil's tower out of this mashed potato. Yeah, yeah. all the people that were, uh, you know, kind of put that, that idea was put in their head of this vision yeah. of, of to go there is very interesting to me. That, that whole yeah. part fascinated me. Yeah, and that whole thing is like, and we're all wondering why did they have that vision? And, and he has this great sequence where he actually puts like a huge, you know, 15 foot tower, like 10 foot tower in his living room and he's tearing his up kitchen. His, yeah, his, his kitchen. Yeah, his kitchen. And, and he creates the devil's tower in his living room, doesn't know why. Yeah. And then of course, suddenly he's sitting there like, and he's calling his wife, it's like, okay, yeah. it's over, I'm tired of doing this. Yeah. But no, she, she left him like when he started throwing the dirt through the kitchen window to oh, move yeah. the tower. She's like, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> we're, yeah. over. we're done. We're done. And then of course he sees it. Then, then like he, and like many people are driven to go there. And of course the military doesn't want them there. And there's this whole sequence where they try to say there's an anthrax here, et cetera. Um, but that whole, this is what's interesting about the film is this idea of believing and knowing something, but not knowing what it is. There's a lot of things about faith. And so some reviewers think that the aliens are some sort of symbol of God or religion and that people like Richard Dreyfus are like prophets that know something. And um, of course, in the end, Richard Dreyfus is, is taken and he knows he has the belief and he, he, he actually, you know, gets on the ship. And, yeah, fast and, they had, and they had, what, 20 trained people to go on that ship to be kind yeah. of like the cultural exchange. And the aliens, he at the last minute gets added to that. And they're the only, he's the only one they take. They don't even, yeah. they have no interest in any of the other specially trained people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's so what we're talking about, what we see in the beautiful shots of the, you know, the aliens and there's really marvelous shots, of this huge alien ship. And it's really quite, and we actually see all these little aliens come out and they're dancing around. And I found out, I didn't know this, that they were all played by 
six-year-old girls from Mo, the, Mo Love, this was shot in Alabama, um, were all these little girls that they just put them in these little aliens. Yeah. You could kind of tell that those were t- children in those costumes. I mean, I always thought, I always could sense that those were just the way they were moving around and how small they were. Aliens. I thought they actually found some aliens. Did you? Is that what you thought? Um, and, you know, the other thing I thought was because there was two types of aliens, right? There was those little children looking ones and then there was the really creepy spider looking uh body one that was like that came out first like i'm the creepy head of the alien people and i was the whole time i'm like is this et's dad who is this who's because i'm like trying to see the similarity between et and this because there is a little bit of a similarity between well a couple of things is that a lot of people think so et was made about 10 years later and oh no five years not even not even 10 early a lot of people think it is it's basically a sequel to close encounter it's just like what if an alien gets left behind and what happens? And this is sort of a scenario of like him getting left behind and you know him phoning home and, and all that. And the other thing that's fascinating about Spielberg's vision is they did originally have Dreyfus. So we see him go on the ship and then they had sequences of in, in the ship and looking around and seeing everything. And that was in the director's cut when he, or in a Hollywood later cut. And when, when uh, Spielberg saw the renderings, he said, absolutely not. I don't want any of these things. And so all the stuff inside the ship was taken out because he, he said it ruins it because it makes us see too much. He wants right. us, our imagination to like what's in there. And we want to see them tell us something, but it's actually more satisfying our imaginations of what's in there. Yeah. Yeah. What's wonderful about him and really great filmmakers you don't, if you show everything, you're ruining it for us because our imaginations and what we kind of imagine is where the film really is quite unique and marvelous. I, yeah, I think those are very good points. A couple of things that I also uh, noticed was this film was very much in the forefront of product placement. There was a really massive product placement. And I don't know if it was intentional, but certainly, you know, with uh, McDonald's, Baskin Robbins, Coca-Cola, you know, when they're trying to shield all the the trucks, the military trucks, they're putting all the labels of these corporations on there and they're very much displayed. And then, you know, the drinking, the Coca-Cola cans and the McDonald's restaurant. And there's a lot of what looks like intentional product placement in this film. And I'm just wondering if this was one of those first films to really take advantage of like mainstream product placement because it was so in your face that, you know, you really, you know, you remember Baskin Robbins and you remember the the Coca-Cola signs on the trucks and, um, the shell station, you know, there's a lot of that in there. And, and I, and I just was curious whether that, you know, because I know that that became a big thing in the eighties was, you know, really making yeah. money off product. Well, both Spielberg and Lucas were ahead of the game because when Lucas and that the film that won the best picture this year was star Wars and um, Lucas, like he, he basically gave the control to the company, the, the, the distribution company. He said, I just want rights to all, products from the film the all, merch. All, he wanted the merch all the merch yeah and I want right to all the sequels and they're like well whatever and he's and, and he understood it and he and Spielberg were, were great pals back in the day right. and there's a story about one of the sci-fi um uh sorry one of the uh, the guys in the special effects I forget his name and he uh Dennis Murren and he apparently screwed in a little r2d2 in the and I haven't been able to find it anywhere when I look at it in the mothership. So there's a little R2-D2 put in there as like, a, I guess you'd call it an Easter egg today. Yeah. Um, those two totally, Star Wars is Close Encounters. Like these films, no one, everyone considered these films B films, which were just kind of, you know, previously just special, big special effects and don't take it seriously. But these guys put really interesting characters into these films and they just, and now look at it today. I mean, anything related to Spielberg films and obviously Star Wars, I mean, they figured out something that was 50 years ago. Oh, yeah. No, it's the canon of, of oh, yeah. modern cinema, you know. Uh, the, you know, they, that R2-D2 story is also in Indiana Jones, I think, in one of the temple scenes or something. Yeah. They, they put an R2-D2 C-3PO in the, in the, the Egyptian, you know, wall mm-hmm. tableaus. Um, the other thing that I liked about this was he, he gave a personality to the spaceships in a way. It felt like the spaceships were their own. Like It, it kind of made me think maybe the Transformer idea was kind of influenced by this because the little ships, they felt, I felt like they were, you know, in themselves having a little personality, especially the little ones that were buzzing around all the time. You know, you, yeah. you got the sense 
that you know he intentionally placed a, a little bit of a personality in the in the different types of spaceships, the alien ships. And the one thing we haven't talked about, which is probably the most memorable for many people, is the the music, and it's yeah. just the five note. Da na na na. No, I was singing. Yeah, that's not it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not musical. But it's so recognizable, and it, and then that's of course how they interact the scientists with the the ship, and it's really a great sequence, and it's just all done with musical notes. Yeah, all the music I think was very good. I, I think it was John Williams. Was he the composer for this? John Williams. Yeah, yeah and, and, and he also did Star Wars, and I mean he was yeah. he was really becoming quite. Uh, well known for it and you know this is we talked a little bit about movies that you'd want to see in a theater this is a movie I regret watching on my computer I wish I had a bigger tv I would have watched this because I think this is one of those movies where the bigger the better you know especially with the sound and the uh and, you know I should have come over to your house and watched it on that giant thousand inch tv thing you've got hanging on your wall yeah <laughs> Yeah, when I left, I felt like I had a sunburn on my face in the theater. Like I was just like, "Wow, I'm going back in there." Yeah, so. no, it's a it's a very, it's a powerful experience. It's a good movie. I thought, you know, I, I hadn't watched it in years, and I I had forgotten about whole scenes, and it just I really, I really enjoyed the movie. It was, it, you know, and and it's good, you know, when you you know when we do these things, and you really feel like, oh man, that was a great experience. You know, I still felt that watching Close Encounters. You know. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. Let's go to our, our second movie. And that's the movie I picked. Um, it's it's uh, well known as well. It's it's called Saturday Night Fever. And as soon as you, you know, as soon as you hear that, you start you just start the beat of staying alive, you know, boom, 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 staying alive. But uh, a great movie directed by uh, John Batham and produced by Robert Stigwood. It, the screenplay is by Norman Wexler, who's also very famous. He did uh He's done a lot of Serpico. I think he 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 did the, um, the screenplay for Serpico and uh, several other well-known uh, '70s. Although he wasn't a, a very healthy person, I think he was a very mentally ill person. And then it was starring John Travolta and Karen Gorney. But really, John Travolta is the movie um, playing Tony, uh, a young a young Brooklyn-born uh, son of a blue-collar worker in a very Italian Catholic family, and uh, you know, 19 years old and uh, no, no interest in really uh, career yet, but just has a passion for the disco movement and dancing and just investing all of his free time into clothing, money, uh, dancing practice to, to all building up to his, his weekend visit to the, to the club disco. I think it was 2001. I think it was called club 2001. 2001 the yeah. 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 It's, it's, and so in him and his uh, entourage of, of boyhood friends, they, you know, they all live for that Saturday night at the club uh, going to the disco where they're all kind of minor celebrities and especially John Travolta, who's Tony, who's the best dancer in the club and uh, just walks in there and his whole life just transforms into his, his persona of being the, the number one uh, dancer and, and charismatic person in the club. And it's such a, uh, a dichotomy from his real life of being a, a assistant painter, uh, paint salesman at a, a little hardware store, which is his, his day job. And you kind of see that, you know, the whole, the whole movie's kind of juxtaposing these two lives of his between him and his friends and his life at the disco and, you know, trying to kind of figure out what his next step is knowing that, you know, he's probably not going to be the super dancer at the disco for his whole life and struggling with this identity. And it's very well done. I mean, the whole movie is from the very, and it's one of the most iconic openings of a movie because you see him walking down the street wearing, you know, immaculate clothes um, that, you know, surrounded by these working class people in Brooklyn who are just kind of dressed normally. And he's walking to the beat of the song and, uh, you know, checking out women and, and, and trying to get eye contact. Meanwhile, he's, he's holding a can of paint that he's delivering to his, to his boss. But, you know, the whole, the whole experience of him being just this person who's not fitting in at the moment and looks a little pseudo celebrity value to the scene is incredible. And it, and it really sets the tone of the movie, I think. And I, I, I believe that uh, when Robert Stigwood, the producer, he signed John Travolta to a three movie deal 
based off his experience on Welcome Back Carter. And he, we paid him a million bucks to, to do a three movie deal. And a lot of people criticized Robert Stewart saying, what are you doing? I mean, this guy has no, he's just a newcomer in a, in a sitcom. And, uh, and Stigwood saw something. And I'll tell you, right from the beginning of Saturday Night Fever, you go, he's worth the million bucks right away. I mean, just, I think that that first scene really sets the movie and you realize, oh man, this is going to be a fun movie. You know, it's going to be something I'm going to enjoy watching because just the energy in that, that initial part is really strong. And even when he stops to get his pizza, you see the, the change. And because when he speaks, it completely changes. He's got that strong Brooklyn accent. You know, the synapses aren't really all popping it seems like when he's uh, I think I'll have two pieces of pizza you know and, and it kind of changes this guy's energy is all about his expression of his of himself and his care and his charisma and his art and you, you there's you're not really sensing a strong intellectual connection and and that's you know just that pizza order really for me established that that role right away it's like he you know he was like I, I don't want three pieces I'm gonna take two pieces today you know and it was just this you know this way of the, they produce that. And the interesting thing, thing was the, the woman who served him as pizza, that's actually his sister in real life. That was John Travolta's sister. They had a couple of cameos. His mother also is in the scene, the end of the scene when he returns the paint. And the woman's like, it took you half an hour. To, and he's like, I'll take a dollar off. And and, uh, and that was his mother who played the, the, the customer in the paint store that he's, re, he's going to return the, uh, selling this can of paint to. So, you know, the beginning of the movie, I really enjoyed just the, the tone that they set. I thought it was really, right away, you get the energy of the movie. Yeah, I think it really comes across. I think you're right. I wouldn't say he's an amazing actor necessarily, but his confidence, the way they show his confidence in the opening, he's got a great look. Oh, and yeah. I guess he's a good looking guy, I guess. But the, the way he comes in, and I, I was so surprised, uh, the opening sequence, they had this crazy extreme low shot, like basically from the pavement looking right up his body, which is just never done in film. And they do it a couple other times when he's dancing. But it's just extraordinary, like who would think of shooting there? It doesn't, doesn't it's, it's a crazy idea, but it, it works incredibly well. And it definitely sets him up as being the guy that he's the king of that neighborhood. Um, even though, as you say, he's, he's looking good, but he's actually just carrying uh, a can of paint. And you mentioned the three picture deal. The next picture he did with Stigwood was Grease. Yeah. And uh, I mean, and I think the other film was, was I forget what it's called, but it didn't do well. But the two picture Billy gets Grease and Saturday Night Fever and both films made incredible money. So Stigwood, uh, everyone respected after that decision. That's sure. Great. Yeah, no. I, well, you know, Stigwood also, he was, as we know from Tommy, he was the, the guy who was the, the backing behind Tommy as well, that film. That he was and he was the that. manager of the Bee Gees. And yeah. of course, bringing the Bee Gees into this thing was a stroke of genius because the Bee Gees just made four or five songs that were just astonishingly well, well connected yeah. to the yeah and they cranked them out like in a weekend basically it was amazing but we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the music uh as we move through this a little bit so the other thing you talked about the the um cinematography they really broke the, the traditional cinematography right away you see him as as this elevated you know from that shot you see him elevated as kind of like that charismatic um person by the way they angle the camera and, and you see that in his bedroom when he's changing clothes and another shot that i really liked was through the closet from inside the closet as he's picking out his clothes you get the shot instead of like from behind when he's you know the camera's actually in the closet and he's searching through his clothes and that i thought also was probably one of the first times i'd really seen that as well as that in the closet camera shot you know i thought that also kind of broke a little bit more of the traditional cinematography shots and so you right away you you you're established that this is going to be a non-traditionally shot film, you know, from from I, these. I totally agree. It was non non-traditional. There's, I think that it looked like the, the way they shot it was they would just go to a, a, the location. It was a lot, a lot of a shot in the location, and they would just like look at how they could shoot it in a unique, interesting way, and then they, they went and did it. And that's yeah. the other thing you talk about the contrast. The contrast is also between him at the disco and him at home. Because the way he's treated at home and the what's going on at his home and the way, I mean, he's just treated like a schmuck and his parents are always, you know, yelling at him. And, or, hit, uh, or hitting him, or hitting him. Or hitting him, yeah. There's yeah. all these things where, there's a great funny scene where they, basically, he's a sister too, I'm not sure if his brother's in that scene, but everyone hits each other 
And then the mother screams, finally, there's no hitting at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah, the grandmother, the grandmother, grandmother. In, in Italian, she's like, stop. And that was apparently that was all uh, improv. She was she 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 didn't have any lines. They just she just went with that. And that 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 whole scene is it's like a three studios movie because the father mm -hmm. hits the mother. The mother turns and knows she can't hit the father back and or she hit him first. And then and then the father hits the son. And then, you know, and and John Travolta actually broke. He, he broke character but you don't recognize it because he's like hey hey don't not the hair you know yeah. i worked a long time on this hair that actually is in the, in the, that's a, that that was really john travolta saying that line because that wasn't he was the fact that the guy the actor had hit him in the head with his hair but it worked so well that they kept it in the film because and, and it was, was vinnie barbarino's character in welcome back cotter yeah, yeah. i would never touch the hair so. yeah yeah and the other thing that was good about that was you almost see john travolta crack when he watches the slapping across the table across from him he almost breaks character in that but you, you just see this little smirk that you he it looks like he's about to crack because it just looked like a three stooges scene you know yeah. the, the dad the mom and then the daughter and then the grandma's like hey, hey stop you know and, it, and he's got this little smirk like i thought he was gonna crack it was it was a good it's a great very authentic family italian traditional italian family scene i thought they did that very well it really established his home life a little bit, you know, this kind of like abusive out of work father. And um, and he's just dealing with it. And he's the second son because his older brother is the saint because he's a, he becomes a priest and they've got a picture of him above the, the dining room table. And, you know, and, and basically Tony Travolta's character has to live in the shadow of his amazing brother. And so he, he knows that he can never live up to this height. And then later on, we, we realized that the brother has his own problems because he comes home and announces he quit the priesthood, stuns the family, and they don't know how to deal with this. And actually, it, that moment helps build a stronger relationship between Tony and his much older brother, who um, uh, wants to you know, learn about Tony as a, as a young man now and, and goes and experiences him at the disco and sees that difference and stunned by how amazing he is as a dancer and is really impressed with his very proud of his brother but then realizes that he can't really live in this world anymore and because of that you know he he decides to go move into kind of like a halfway house for ex-priest or something you know yeah well and i was once again talking about the non-traditional aspect you know I, I, I the first time i've seen this film was was this week i'd never seen it before i knew of course the scenes that related to the music and i was so i thought okay there's this priest and he comes back and and, you know, as you said, he was adored, you know, basically a saint by his mother and the father, everyone respected him and he was the pride of the family. And then he, you know, now he's the embarrassment. And then he goes, he's there for a little while. Then, as you said, he goes to the sort of priest halfway house and then we never see him again. And I was like, I was sure he's going to come back. Something else is going to happen and something related to his development and uh, something tragic or something else. And then we just, he just leaves the story. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the original screenplay that uh, Norman Westcott turned in was 177 pages long and they loved it, but there was no way that they could, you know, have this Probably movie. Probably hacked a lot of those things out. Yeah, so it was it was hacked up pretty well to get it down to, to you know, 100, probably 120 pages. Yeah. Um, to get it into running time that they could deal with, right? So, you know, there's probably a lot of sub stories that just kind of, you know, meandered out that you wonder why you didn't see in their yeah, problem. Maybe they a lot of questions because also his development of this relationship with Annette, the, the girl he regularly dances with, that kind of, it just kind of like fizzles out and it never, and we never we don't see Annette develop much more. I mean, of course, there's, there's a big, you know, tragic scene with her in the end. Um, and then also, I forget the name of the girl that he loves, the, the, the amazing dancer. Stephanie. And that's, what's her name? Stephanie. Stephanie. And it, there's good, there's development, but it's just sort of, you know, the way the film ends, I was, I thought there was more that was going to happen. And it just sort of, it ends on them deciding they're going to be friends. And I was like, really, that's the end of this film. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Cause it, for me, when you see films like this, like dance movies, or, you know, they, they seem they're going to be formulaic. This film is not formulaic at all. It, it no. does really surprising turns all over the place. And you're kind of surprised that, you know, certain characters are developed like or, or the dancing spe specifically there's a scene where he wins a dance competition but he feels bad because he really wasn't better than this spanish couple and in a dance off kind of movie all these movies we've had since you would definitely have him where he trains you know a montage sequence and he goes back and he 
takes on the great, great Spanish dancers, but no, he just doesn't win. And then he moves on and does something else. And it doesn't develop the way definitely a traditional or whatever, a formulaic Hollywood script would do. Right. Today. And I don't think they wanted it to be that way. I think the, the, dan- the uh, like you know, that, that wasn't the, the climax of the movie. You know, the climax of the movie is the big bridge scene, the after effects of this. It, at one point in the movie, one of the uh, girls who's totally infatuated with him and, and wants Annette. to be a dance partner, Annette, uh, played by, uh, I think, Donna, Donna Pascal. I think her name was Pascal. Um, but she's very good in this movie. Uh, but it, she, she's horribly in, infatuated with him and, and, and is willing to let him have sex with her. And, and there's a lot of uh, just gratuitous uh, sexuality in this movie. And, 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 and they certainly border on sexual assault constantly in this movie. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, take them out to the car and have sex, you know, a little break. Everybody can have, be in the car for 20 minutes to have sex and they got to get out with the next guys waiting with his woman or whatever. So there's a lot of gratuitous use of women. And there's, a, there's some very sexual assault flavored scenes where, including with uh, the main characters, John Travolta and um, uh, the actress who played Stephanie Karen Gorney. Uh, you know, he tries to, you know, assault her in the car at one point. The car seems to be the center for sexual assault uh, because there is a gang rape. Again. Annette is gang raped by John Travolta's friends. And he's like, you know, after it happens, she's, you know, she was willing. And then it became like a, a out of control thing. And she cries and doesn't want it to happen. And then, you know, after they're done and they're on the Verrazano Bridge and she and he turns to her and goes, you cunt you're now a cunt is that what you wanted and it was just like holy cow i mean holy no sympathy whatsoever he was just upset that he had to even deal with he didn't partake in it but his two buddies did and yeah very very powerful but upsetting because you could just sense that you know that was the life that these kids had you know it totally and the fact that he's blaming her for being sexually assaulted i mean she's you know we, we we see that she's got issues and she's drunk i think she's on speed or something but the fact that we're that I mean, today make a film like that. I mean, it would just get they wouldn't show up because they're the the you know the there's no Me Too movement happening there. Yeah. And it's although just, although that film was that film was edited to two versions, a PG version and an R version, and that that scene is out of the of the PG. Yeah, that's fine. And there there's a lot. I mean, he tries to rape uh, the, yeah. the, the well, in the back of the car again. We see the that back that, of the car, yeah. and she kicks him in the groin and. You know, and and she leaves, and she's like, "You you tried to rape me, and I and I don't want to talk to you anymore." And and you know, he feels sheepish about it. He says, "I won't do that again," which is, you know, she's very forgiving. I have to say, yeah, yeah, because this the next morning that she he's knocking yeah. on the door, and she he, she's like, "It's so matter of fact, you well, you're not going to try anything." He goes, "No, no, 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 I just want to yeah. talk." You know, you're gonna rape me again, all right? I mean, yeah, yeah it's, well. it's, it's it's definitely very shocking, hundred uh, percent by today's standards. Uh, but the interesting thing is that the character. Uh, that the Travolta plays is just, he's fascinating. And he feels, you know, it's not like he, he didn't make a lot of mistakes. He treats some people pretty badly, but he's he generally changes. He, he turns into a different person. He really thinks about what he does and why does he do it. And he's a really interesting person that I think a lot of people learned a lot from. You know, it's interesting that you say that because at the end, I felt there was a huge, huge flaws at the end of this movie because his, his, one of his best friends jumped off the bridge and died hours hours before and he's he gets on the train and he's thinking about his life and then he gets to her house and he's like she's like what happened he goes i'll tell you about it later it's it's and then and then he talks about how he wants to be her friend and da 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 and there's like you know he's not there's no mention of the kid dying which just yeah. happened that night and he doesn't even mention it to her and he's like yeah i'll have to you know my my cat got sick that's basically the level of concern he had and he just really you had a strong narcissistic yeah. sense of of this character you know he's like yeah uh, you know that guy wasn't like super important but you know and also the thing that blew me away was there's a scene one of their bodies gets beaten up by we're assuming spanish people because there's a big uh rivalry that's what he tells his friends he tells his yeah. friends that that's when he tells his friends that there's <coughs> these Spanish guys from the Barracuda Club, and and this guy's been beaten up pretty badly. He's got a broken leg, and and so then these guys they take they get really upset about. It. They go to revenge, and they go to the Barracuda Club. They drive their car into it, and they just attack and assault everybody there. And then they go back to the guy and they tell him, "Hey, we got him back." And he's like, 
You know, I gotta admit, I'm not really sure they're from the Barracuda yeah, Club. It might have been. It might have been. That's insane. They get really mad. It's like why? It's like well, they could have been from the Barracuda Club. It's like we just went and it destroyed their club, and we assaulted like eight people there and got seriously hurt in the process. I mean, they're all yeah. beat up themselves, and, and yeah, yeah. And, you know, the 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 other thing I wanted to point out in this movie was just the acceptance of such hardcore racist beliefs in these communities, oh my you know, I mean, between yeah. African-Americans and, oh, the, and the Hispanic communities and the Italian-American communities, you really got a, a sense that there was just really strong ingrained racism in, oh, those, in those boroughs, you know, in those neighborhoods. And, um, and the thing was, is when they, even when they made this movie and they made this movie in Brooklyn, in those areas, and, um, you know, there was even some tension on the sets because like the Italian mafia was trying to, um, the local Italian mafia guys were trying to extort them for money saying you need protection. And, and they threw a firebomb at one point into the club. They didn't do a lot of damage, but then, you know, they also were saying, you knew, you know, you need to paint this area and you can pay us $7,000 and we'll take, you know, and they actually ended up paying off the mafia to get them to stop bothering them. And then the Hasidic community in the area didn't like that they were filming on this on the Sabbath and they turned over, they tried to turn over one of the set cars and, you know, they were very um, uh, aggressive in their protesting. And then the whole community, once they found out John Travolta, who was at this point becoming quite a star, that you know they were swamped by tens of thousands of people and they had to change all the call sheets and make them fake and film in the early morning or late at night because they the crowds were out of control and ruining the shoot oh there's also this a crazy line in there like at everything is about looking good and having the right shirt and the pants and the shoes and then there's a line i'll have to paraphrase it because it's completely inappropriate today but the lines basically if you looked any better you would be a black guy and it was like yeah. it's interesting because they're basically saying the black guys are dressed by far the sharpest and the best, but it was also meant as this sort of dig of like, okay, they dress too good and they're too sharp or they're too slick. Oh yeah, like, no, there oh, was, I mean, guys. yeah, the, the ethnic, uh, the ethnic pride and then the, the, the slurs against the other ethnic groups in the movie just taken for granted in that society at that time. Uh, one of the other lines I liked in this um, that really kind of was a, a powerful philosophical line was his boss, is uh you know talking to him tony's like i don't know about the future and and he's like you know fuck the future and and his boss says tony you can't fuck the future the future fucks you and i thought what a, what a great truth you know as we that moment in the movie i was just like wow this guy was ahead of his time whoever wrote that line you know norman wexel or whatever because that boy that could not be any truer right now than than what we're going through you know um the last thing I wanted to talk about was the uh, the the music, yeah. Because uh, the first thing I want to talk about is Monte, the disco DJ in the club. Yeah. He was hysterical. What a great character he was. He had just the perfect disco uh, vibe that you know we see in all the falling movies that make fun of disco at that time. You know, because disco actually in, in, at that point that the movie was made was actually dying out, and the they said that even the costume designer had to the department stores where they got the clothing for the for the characters they had to go into the back and look in the boxes because the, nobody was buying those shirts anymore the polyester and all that stuff it was already out and so you know this movie kind of rediscovered disco a little bit which some people would argue was a terrible thing but yes the movie was amazing in regards to that music and it totally set the tone and that that soundtrack that the BJ's the BGs ended up working on and they weren't even approached till after the movie was something that um just worked out because of Robert Stigwood's relationship and we 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 find out that you know they pumped out those three songs those big hit songs in one weekend and set those demos over and it became just this monster success it was the highest selling soundtrack for 15 years I think not until uh Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard did, did that get broke that record get broken it was a number one selling album. As you said, they made those songs really quickly. And I think all of those songs, I forget all their names, um, all went to number one at one point. I think there was a moment that all four or five of them were in the top 10 or something. The album, album soundtrack was number one for a long time as well. It was the number one thing that the film made something like $260 million on a $20 million, $3 million budget. Uh, the, the, the success of this film at the time was just unbelievable. And as you said, everyone said, because what's his name? John Travolta was the TV star. He'd never done a film before. And, you know, it was just a guy going to a discotheque is really the whole film. But the, and I'm not a fan, a huge fan of the Bee Gees or the sound, but 
they shoot it incredibly well. And the and Travolta actually, I think, is a pretty solid dancer. I don't know much about it, but yeah, he has, a, he has a dancing great. background and he really trained hard in that movie. He lost 20 pounds, yeah. he got in great shape, and uh, he took yeah. that very seriously. And those sequences with the music and the uh, 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 the dancing are, are very well done. And it's, I don't really have generally much of a tolerance for that kind of stuff. As you know, when I was a kid, I had no interest in seeing this film because that's how it was marketed. I was just, I just kept going back to see Close Encounters. And uh, so this film um, delivers, it's, it's a really engaging film uh, from start to finish. It just left me with a good feeling. I mean, I just, I enjoyed the movie, even though it's really dark at the end, but the whole idea of just taking me back to that time when I could just go to the clubs and hang out and just feel like top of the world, uh, really, because surprisingly, I did do some of that stuff. And, and it was, it was, you know, <laughs> I, uh, it, it took me back a little bit. I, was, uh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, it wasn't disco time or anything, but, um, you know, there are times in my life where I go to a, a, a club or a bar and, and the guy would, uh, me and my, my entourage of guys, and we, we'd go in there and it'd be packed and they would just pull out some table out of storage with a bunch of chairs and, uh, and go make a space for me and my boys. And we'd go sit down. And that was, it was kind of like that VIP experience of, of watching in the club. And I was just like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's good times, you know? The other thing that's fascinating culturally about this is all these guys, I mean, John Travolta must be 20 something, 23, 24, but his character is like 18 and, or maybe 19, he's 19. 19. Yeah. And, uh, but he's already been going to the clubs for like a year and a bit because drinking age in the States now at this time is 18 years right. old. And, you know, this is a huge shift going from 18 to 21 because 18 is out of high school and, and 21 is like, you're already two, three years into college. And so the clubs are full of yeah. teenagers. And, yeah, and, and it's not necessarily in that community are they going to college. I mean, those are all working I mean, class people. Yeah. So, but yeah, I agree hundred um, percent. It was a different time, but uh, you know, that, that whole value of, uh, you know, escaping to that reality. It, I really connected to that. My, at some points in my youth, it was, it, it just, it was fun to kind of remember those experiences and they really captured that disco life so well, the way they filmed the scenes of the disco extremely well done and and the energy was just perfect yeah if you're looking for connections between close encounters and saturday night fever you definitely have the colored lights on the floor of the dance floor <laughs> yeah, yeah. very similar to the colored lights that the the ship the mothership uh, does and also the scientists that's they the both panel. through panels of colored lights so. yeah yeah if you like yeah. colored lights then you're going to love this podcast uh go yeah. see these movies because yeah. these were the, the colored lights movies of 1977 yeah. so on that note i think we'll uh end this uh episode and just say that these are two movies that held up really well we both enjoyed the energy of these movies and uh enjoyed viewing them again or for the first time and uh, I, you know, if you haven't seen these guys in a while, I, I think we'd both be comfortable recommending that you, you you get these movies again and see them because man, they're 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 fun and interesting and entertaining, and they still hold up, and they're very influential to a lot of cinema that followed after them. Very much so, and, and both phenomenally successful films. Yeah, and very successful. All right, Don. Well, a good episode, and we will end with uh, just a little reminder that next episode we're looking at best picture nominees between the academy awards and in the golden globes uh for 1978 so have a good one and i'll see you next time